Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. Today we're absolutely thrilled to have the great podcast master Dominic Sambrook with us to talk about the monumental decade in world history that is the 1970s. And the question we're going to ask is, what were the 1970s about? Why do we have such conflicting narratives about it? And are there parallels between what was happening in 1970s Britain and now? The Queen has asked me to form the next government. And I am indeed proud to accept. To govern is to serve. This government will be at the service of all the people, the whole nation. Our purpose is not to divide, but to unite. And where there are differences, to bring reconciliation, to create one nation. As Prime Minister, I want to speak to you simply and plainly about the grave emergency now facing our country. Jobs will be in danger and take-home pay will be less. We shall have to postpone some of the hopes and aims we have set ourselves for expansion and for our standard of living. We shall have a harder Christmas than we have known since the war. So there's two contrasting clips there of Edward Heath. First in 1970, as he becomes Prime Minister, defeating Harold Wilson, declaring his intention to bring the nation together. And sounding oddly, I think, like Margaret Thatcher nine years later. And then in 1973, at the height of the oil crisis, these two clips tell us a lot about that decade, a decade which has become pivotal, I think, in our kind of national myth-making. The decade starts with hope and quickly enters despair, inflation, decline, weak sterling, IMF bailouts, entering Europe, all of those things, absolutely pivotal. And the story I think we tell ourselves about that decade is how, as a country, we entered the kind of nadir and then turned it around, first by joining Europe, then by electing Mrs. Thatcher, taking on the unions, all of that story. And I think, Dominic, your books are so brilliant at showing how much of this story that we tell ourselves isn't right. And it was a time of political giants, political achievement in some ways, rising living standards for a lot of people, and a kind of deep national continuity. So we wanted you to really tell us your narrative of the 70s, help correct those myths. And then in the second half, we'll turn to how the 1970s have such parallels with today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a great honor to be on a terrific new podcast. So I would disagree with one thing you said there, which was that you said a decade that began with great hope. I don't quite think that's right, actually. So the the 70s in our national imagination are kind of identified with declinism, deep anxieties about kind of industrial relations, about the economy, about Britain's place in the world, all of those kinds of things. But that's a thread that runs all the way through Britain's post-war history. 
and indeed going back even further, actually, you can see in the 1920s and 1930s. And I would say that I think in some ways, I know this is such a tedious kind of historian thing to do, but there is a kind of a long 70s. So you could actually start the 70s if you were being counterintuitive. You could start it with England winning the World Cup at Wembley in, in the summer of 1966, because the summer of 1966 is where the Wilson government, so that's the government before Ted Heath, where they really come unstuck and all their stuff about white heat and modernization kind of evaporates. They get There's a crippling strike by the National Union of Seamen. A year later, Wilson has to devalue the pound. Then he's floundering around trying to think of something to do. He flirts with joining Europe, but General de Gaulle says no for the second time. Wilson, then his next wheeze is he's going to reform industrial relations, which are running into trouble, partly for deep-seated kind of structural reasons, because Britain has too many unions, they're too fragmented, they're too fractious, the relationship with government has become increasingly toxic, but also because it's obviously reflecting workers' anxieties about deindustrialization and about actually the rise in inflation, which is a huge problem, starting to become a really big problem from the late 1960s onwards. So actually, when Ted Heath comes in, Ted Heath, to some extent, is sort of Wilson Mark II. Ted Heath says, well, you know, things haven't quite gone right in Britain. We will modernise. We will be more streamlined. We will take ruthless decisions. We'll be, you know, a decisive, efficient, slightly smaller state government, no more bailouts for lame ducks, all this sort of stuff, which actually I don't think Ted Heath really believes. I think Ted Heath is much more of a pragmatist, but he's also a prisoner of the kind of consensus, the post-war consensus. So actually, although when Ted Heath comes in, although, of course, the conservative middle classes are like, you know, that awful Wilson with his shiny Max has been banished and the days of super tax are no more. I actually think there is a, you were talking about continuity. I think the, in, in terms of that sort of, that most indefinable of things for historians to try and chart, which is the national mood, I think there is a continuity going from the mid to late 1960s right through until, let's say, 1973, 1974. And then what changes then is that it basically the national sort of sense of self-confidence drops off a cliff with the up, massive upsurge in inflation in like late 1973 and the strike by the National Union of Mine Workers and, of course, the Heath government's self-immolation. Well, I would just push you on that, Dominic, because you couldn't... I mean, I kind of like the idea of starting the 70s in this moment, actually, of, you know, great sporting achievement, <laughs> what seems like this summer of happiness. But you could, I think, make the argument that actually it's the autumn of 67 when the 70s start. Because yes. for the reasons you said, it's the devaluation, but also, crucially, it's the announcement of retreating from east of Suez. And although yeah. it's not going to be implemented until Heath, because... That's essentially Britain having to get out of the Middle East, essentially because of what's going on in Aden as much as anything. And then that is the context in which the bit that you're talking about from 73 onwards, so the energy shocks are going to come in a context in which Britain can no longer act as some kind of imperial guardian of not just Britain's energy security in the Middle East, but Western Europe's more generally. And you might say as well that that's when we can really see the inflation problem really coming to the fore because of sterling's devaluation. And those things are actually quite tied to each other as well, because when Britain's getting out of the Middle East, it's also going to find that its oil companies are not going to allow it to buy oil in sterling or those oil companies, it's not going to be able to buy oil in sterling any longer. So the, the set of intersecting problems that are really going to dominate in the middle of the 70s all come together in that autumn of 67. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Helen. I think there's a lot of truth in the argument that it's actually in the autumn of 1967 that a lot of the political class, and actually the country at large, they really start to buy into a very Kleinist narrative about Britain. But that said, those things that you're talking about, so the recognition that Britain's role east of Suez, you know, for the, for the dustbin of history, but also the, the devaluation of the pound and sterling's diminution and the league table of world currencies, if you want to put it that way. Both of those things are actually belated in in um, the autumn of 1967. So people who are, you know, if you're writing about the Wilson government, a lot of people might say, well, they would have been much better, actually, to grasp those two nettles earlier on. And so much of Wilson's government, his time in office, is actually stymied by the fact that he's fighting this desperate rearguard action not to make those tough decisions, which because he thinks, you know, Labour can't be the party of devaluation. 
And actually, I think that sort of fear of change, if you like, this this emphasis on putting off the harshest medicine and trying to insulate your electorate from the consequences from, of global change. I think that is actually one of the keys to the 70s politics. And that probably, obviously, the big difference with Mrs. Thatcher is that for all their talk of modernization, all these kinds of things, that the instinct of the Wilson, Heath, Callaghan governments, they will, always, they will almost always reach for the bailout. They will almost always make the decision at that Chrysler factory that's producing cars that nobody wants to buy. We can find a little bit of cash to keep that going because that's the job of government. They perceive that as being the job of government because they remember the 1930s and the Great Depression. It's, it's the last period in British politics where the memory of the 30s was a guiding motif. Phil Tinline in his book, The Death of Consensus, is really good on this in the way that all those 70s politicians are what makes them different from Mrs. Thatcher and then the Tebbits and then the emblematic politicians of the 1980s is that in the 70s, you have a generation of politicians whose driving motivation is never again, never again the dole cues. Our job, our prime purpose in politics is to have learned those lessons and to prevent that from happening again. And that's why people are so shocked when there is a change in the national narrative in the early 1980s, a different cast who don't actually share that, that kind of shibboleth. But I buy quite a lot of that. But what about Callaghan's 1976 speech? I think we used this as a clip on one of our earlier episodes where he basically says that the state cannot take responsibility for full employment, that actually when you do that, that you end up with inflation. Now, I actually think that as a characterization of British economic policy, that that over the previous decades, that that speech is actually nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. But... <laughs> he's actually saying, you know, three years before yeah. Margaret Thatcher came into power, that actually the state can't guarantee full employment. I mean, I think you're right. If you go back to Heath's U-turn in 1972, he's definitely motivated by the fact that unemployment's reached a million and it is the never again mentality. But I would say that Callaghan uh, paves the way for Thatcher, yeah. but also that I think early Thatcher governments are terrified by high unemployment. They actually want to try to do something about it. They just don't either don't know how or not willing to make the trade offs that would make that would make that possible. And, and this raises a question, which I think I know that Tom, you wanted to get to about how much continuity that there then is in the 70s and 80s, because there is a way of telling this story that says, look, there's a rupture in 1979. The Conservatives come mm. along, but is that actually right? Okay, so just on Callaghan, first of all, I mean, this is music to my ears, Helen, because on Callaghan, I think a great mistake people make is to think that 1979 is this sort of seismic fracture point, and the story on each side of that divide is completely different. Callaghan, of course, who was always on the right of the Labour Party. I mean, he is the keeper of the cloth cap. He is the guy who's in touch with the unions, but he's always been perceived as being on the pragmatic kind of conservative wing of the Labour Party. And of course, he has a chancellor in Dennis Healy, who again sees himself as a pragmatist, but Healy is taking advice from people who are interested in monetarism. He is publishing monetary targets. He is cutting spending after 1974 when he turned on the taps to win the election. He then turns them off again. But also Healy's instinct actually is one of the, I think Edmund Dell makes this point in his book, The Chancellors. Healy at the end of his time as chancellor is actually cutting taxes. So they're doing it in a much less radical way than Jeffrey Howard, a much less visible way, but they are doing it. So I think a fascinating element of this and a post-war history generally is the continuity between the Callaghan government and the Thatcher government. Now, the Callaghan speech in 1976, I tell you in all candour, that option no longer exists. The cosy world, which we were told would go on forever where full employment would be guaranteed by a stroke of the Chancellor's pen, cutting taxes, deficit spending, that cosy world is gone. That's obviously famously written by his son-in-law, Peter Jay, who had been the economic secretary, I think, at the Times. He's very close to these people who are interested in monetarism. How much does Callaghan himself genuinely believe it? I don't necessarily think does but i think that he and healy are hardened seasoned men of the world who know what the imf wants they want the cuts 
But they also, I think Callahan and Healy had been, they're using the IMF actually as cover. I mean, there are lots of people who talk about this. Healy kind of admits to this a little bit himself in his autobiography. He says, there's a perception the IMF after 1976 pushed me around. And I, you know, they made Britain their plaything. But that's not really right. I think Healy and many of his advisors in the Treasury always wanted to make those cuts that the IMF asked for. So actually, I think there is a continuity between the Callaghan administration and the Thatcher administration. Healy himself said the difference between him and Geoffrey Howe. He said, we both published monetary targets. The difference between us is I met or mine, and he didn't meet any of his. So early Thatcher, I mean, if I, you were doing this long 70s thing, which I accept it's a bit of an A-level gimmick, but if you were doing this, you could say that the first Thatcher administration feels like a very 70s administration. It is a government that is struggling with very high inflation, surging unemployment, obviously, that is fumbling around, that is spending a lot of time arguing. If you go through the archives, the amount of time that Thatcher's key advisors spent arguing about their definitions of the money supply or whatever. Whether it was M3 or M1. or M3, yeah. M1. The idea that they come in, in other words, the idea that they come into power with this radical blueprint that they ruthlessly follow is just not right. They are pulling levers desperately. They're squabbling among themselves, doing all the normal things, actually, that governments do. I would say as early Thatcher, I mean, the thing about unemployment she is undoubtedly more relaxed about it than her predecessors, I would say. Now, that's not to say she's completely relaxed about it. I don't think there is any evidence that in the late 1970s, the people around Thatcher consciously planned for that level of high unemployment. Indeed, quite the reverse. So Nigel Lawson sends a note and he says, we have to squash all this talk of there'll be high unemployment when we get in. You know, I don't think there necessarily will be. I think our measures could take a really, you know, there'll be higher unemployment. But I don't think any of them expect it will be as high as it is. And actually, as you say, Helen, we know from their diaries and all those kinds of things that as it starts to shoot up in 1980 and 1981, a lot of people are absolutely horrified and they think we've really lost control of this. So the idea that there's this sort of slightly Bond villain aspect to the Thatcher administration with them all in the bunker kind of cruelly pulling their levers and pressing their buttons and cackling as factories explode and people go out of work. That's obviously not the case at all. They are as worried as anybody else. The difference between them and their predecessors, however, is they are determined not to let the example of the 1930s kind of traumatise them into backing down. I think that is the big difference. And the fascinating thing is how in 1981 or so, Again, this is, a, I think, a difference and where 1979 could mark, you could see it as marking a divide. In 1981, a lot of people expect Mrs. Thatcher to change course. So obviously the Tory grandees, the Tory wets, lots of people in the press, kind of people writing, you know, sort of worthy 1500 word pieces in the Times or something. They think eventually there will have to be a reckoning. You just can't go on with unemployment heading up towards 3 million, that Mrs. Thatcher will eventually have to change course. And then when it becomes obvious that she's not going to, I think a lot of those older people are actually genuinely really shocked. There's a guy I think called David Wood, I think it is, in The Times. He had grown up in Grantham. And he knew Mrs. Thatcher's father. as a, He'd been, I think, a very young reporter or something along those lines. And he is stunned. And he writes these columns saying... I, I saw the marchers come through Grantham. She must have seen it, even though she was younger than me. How can she not? This is fascinating because in Charles Moore's book on Mrs. Thatcher, he I, and I wonder if this is the key, a key to understanding Mrs. Thatcher, that Grantham wasn't that bad in the 1930s. Right. You know, he was saying that you know, the marchers might have passed through it, but she was working in the shop. There was a, I think there was a local airbase. It was a happy time for her. It wasn't, it was, this was her childhood with her father. You know, she actually looks back to the 30s and think, yeah, it, it, it was good. And they helped out the poor of the town quietly, respectably from the shop. So maybe she's just not scarred by it as much I as... Think, I think it's crucial that she's younger than the Heath Wilson kind of people. So, you know, she's at school. She's thinking about other things. So I think that's, there's, there's that element to it. But it also speaks to something which is as true of the 1930s as your introduction is, was of the 1970s, which is the image of the 1930s as soup kitchens, the road to Wigan Pier, all sort of misery and despair and the British Union of fascists lurking around every corner. That's obviously nonsense. That may be true of some places, 
But there are great swathes of England where actually there's very little unemployment, when light industry is booming, where there are new housing estates. You know, J.B. Priestley in his English journey, brilliant travelogue written in the 30s, has the courts of these kind of three Englands. And he says there's the one England, which is basically flat caps, whippets, and misery. There is England number two, which is kind of stow on the world and fudge. And there's an England number three, which is the Hoover factory and swimming pools and this sort of people going to Butlins. And that England is, I think, the most interesting of the three because it's the least kind of caricatured. And that's probably the one that tallies with her memory and with actually the memory of a lot of the kind of Tory middle classes than the George Orwell, Road to Wigan Pier sort of fantasy England. That's that's fascinating. On, on the 1970s and our misperception, because you mentioned the continuity between Callaghan and, and Mrs. Thatcher, and Helen mentioned before that this is the sort of the idea of continuity was something that fascinates me. And I, I think there's lots of strings that you can pull through the 70s. So let's take, say, Europe, for instance. You know, the government or the, the governing class had turned towards Europe as an answer under Macmillan. And Heath had been his negotiator. Wilson had then essentially come to that position himself in the 60s. And then Heath continued it. And then every prime minister up until, well, essentially uh, Boris Johnson continued with that same policy. And then you had the other element of continuity is slowing economic growth. Again, we think of this fracture point in the 90, in 1979 when we start to recover. But if you look at like a, just a table of economic growth, per year from 1945 until today, I think there is just a, a one long steady decline per year in growth. So nothing much changes. And the thing that really fascinates me about the 1970s is the kind of missed fracture points. And Helen and I were chatting about this sort of off air beforehand. And I'm fascinated by what if Wilson had won in 1970? Would Enoch Powell have become Conservative Party leader? And what would that have meant for British politics? What if Heath had won in 1974? Because he was a radical in foreign policy terms. He wanted a complete break from the United States. He wanted to end the special relationship and pursue a kind of Gaullist vision or a sort of Euro-Gaullist vision of <laughs> Britain in Europe, accepting the single, in theory, a single currency as well. So I wonder whether we actually missed the big fracture points in the 1970s. We, we chose not to go after them. Oh, that is a really interesting thought. Of course, yeah, I mean, you could also argue, what if by some chance you'd had a Labour government that had been determined actually to enact its manifesto in 1974, a Labour government that had given Tony Benn his head at the Department of Industry and had started nationalising companies and had set up the protectionist siege economy that the left of the Labour Party wanted. So there are lots of roads not taken. I suppose what I would say is that the roads generally in history, I mean, you guys may well disagree, but roads not taken are roads not taken for a reason, for a pretty good reason. In other words, they're, they're not necessarily terribly plausible outcomes. Um, so Wilson winning in 1970... And in some ways, you could argue it's astonishing that Wilson does as well as he does in 1970. And it's actually, that's actually a verdict on Heath's, you know, Heath is not a good leader of the Conservatives in opposition. He's generally derided until he wins his yachting race. Everybody thinks of him as a complete dud. And then he comes back all tanned and Wilson is furious. Um, Sydney to Hobart, wasn't it? I mean, a very impressive achievement, by the way, for an opposition leader. If Wilson comes in 1970, he faces, I mean, he has nothing in his locker. He has no great ideas. I mean, Wilson, big idea was modernization, the Department of Economic Affairs, the national plan. That's all crumbled into dust. I, I don't really see how a Wilson government in the early 1970s, of course, is left to maybe quiet because he's now on yet another election. So he can say, well, listen, I'm a winner. But as inflation starts to rise, probably he'd have faced the same trouble with the unions. That the winter of discontent is a very good reminder that Labour governments do not have the magic power to control the unions that some of their uh, adherents claimed. So I don't think that necessarily solves everything. Now, Heath winning again in 1974, I mean, you make the point about, you know, a radical break in foreign policy. And I, I take your, your point, although I think structurally, it's quite hard to see Britain escaping from that relationship with the United States, actually, because not least because of its role in NATO. But the funny thing about Heath is, Heath calls that election in early 1974. But very few people in his high command, that there's such an atmosphere of faintly suppressed hysteria 
And it comes out brilliantly in Douglas Hurd's book at the time. He says, you know, they're, it, it, everything feels, I mean, it's literally dark, you know, because they've got their cut, they've got power cuts. Feels really miserable. It feels apocalyptic. They rush into that election. But why? Because even if they win that election, which, by the way, everybody expects that they will in, on the 28th of February. Of course, they should have called it earlier in February, and they didn't. That was a big mistake. But even if they win that election, the miners aren't going anywhere. I mean, they're still out on strike. The government could say, well, we have this new mandate, but they're not going to get such a cr crushing mandate that the miners will throw up their hands and go home. So I think the Heath government, if, it, if it's re-elected, faces enormous problems with the trade unions. Are the Heath government going to give out all the, inf the massive inflationary pay deals that the Wilson government gave out in 1974-75? I mean, if you read Bernard Donoghue's diaries, the diaries of Wilson's policy chief, and he sort of says, you know, there's a point in between the summer of 1974 and the summer of 1975 when every week some new delegation of union leaders are pitching up at number 10 and then walking out two hours later with a 25% pay deal. He says that at one point the government is literally kind of rummaging through the back of drawers to try and find things to give them to make them go away. Is Heath going to do that? I don't think he is. So in other words, I think the middle of the 1970s would have been dominated by really quite bitter conflicts between Heath and the unions. In other words, Heath would not have had the latitude, I think, to make a great foreign policy break. I think, and I think, is, is he going to do that after the fall of Saigon in the spring of 1975, when the Western alliance feels so embattled, when lot, all the, the commentary pieces are doom and gloom, the West is losing the Cold War, all of this stuff, is this the moment that he makes his great break with the United States? Again, I think it's, I find it hard to imagine that a, such an, a, a prime minister who is himself embattled by circumstances is going to have the ability to make this great break. I think on that as well, if you take, which I completely agree with you, Dominic, that the basic economic problems, which are wage inflation and the relationship with the unions and sterling, are not, and they interact with each other, are not going away, then Heath is still going to run into some version of the 1976 sterling crisis. He's going to be going to yeah. the IMF and asking for a loan. And the idea then, the Americans are going to tolerate like, okay, we're going to authorise this loan for you yeah. via the IMF, and then you're going to do what you like in, in foreign policy. He would have just run into exactly the same structural problems run. that hit. Because I think that the bottom line here is that these governments largely end up doing the same thing. Whatever they start by saying they're going to do, they end up having to have incomes policies to try to deal with inflation, and they end up having to try to manage sterling and it doesn't in that sense make a great deal of difference which of them is in office and the thing i think then that thatcher though does do differently and this is the one thing i do think is a difference where 79 does end something is she says in no circumstances are we going back to incomes policies i think those wilson heath administrations i'd hate to be like an a-level student having to tell the difference between them because ultimately as you say the rhetoric is always different the destination that they, it's the old image that people have of consent, the post-war consensus trains that claim they're going to different destinations, but just appear to be heading down exactly the same tracks, parallel tracks. I think the big thing that Thatcher does, and she does it first, I think, with steel in 1980, is she says, do you know what? We're not going to have anybody around to number 10. We're not going to intervene whatsoever in the strike. We're just going to let you get on with it. We don't interfere in people's pay. You know, you basically paid as much as you can win. And we are not going to settle on your terms. We're not going to do any of that. And people are astounded at that. I mean, lots of people inside her own cabinet are astounded. How can Margaret not get involved in the nitty gritty of industrial relations? Because that's all they've known is people doing that. And, and right the way through to, I would say, the 1983 election, there are people who think she will have to have an incomes policy. You cannot allow this to continue as it is with high inflation and high unemployment. And they're just stunned. It's a really fascinating lesson in the importance of political imagination, actually, that they are so trapped by their own assumptions that they cannot conceive that somebody can run a government and then win re-election without having an incomes policy. By the way, on the IMF, I think the only way around getting the bailout from the IMF would have been 
to pursue some version. I mean, what we might very loosely call kind of austerity, a deflationary politics between 1974 and 1976. Of course, if any government had done that, they would have run into terrible trouble with the trade unions. So is there a way or is the way where we don't? Again, the funny thing about the IMF is that the crisis doesn't come earlier. Britain is it, really, I think that crisis should have come in 1975 when we had inflation at, what is it, 25, 26%. So in some ways, you could argue it's an extraordinary thing that the markets are so tolerant with sterling because the irresponsibility of the economic policy in 1975 is even people intimately involved with the Wilson government talk about means makes it extraordinary that the markets effectively wait for 12 months before finally pulling the plug i i just can't listen to you dominic without thinking of today you know fiscal irresponsibility referendums on <laughs> europe in 1975 moments of national reckoning all of that so i think we should turn to that after the break see you soon hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Your power's a weak old man. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. So that was a clip from, from Star Wars. In the preface of your book, Seasons of the Sun, you describe the second half of the 70s through the lens of Star Wars as, quote, an age of resurgent environmentalism, economic decline and cultural nostalgia, plus under the surface, a thick layer of new age spirituality. Now, you might say that thinking about that, that there's something going on now that meets this description too. So yeah. what is it about the 70s and now that means that so many people end up when they're trying to talk about, I mean, I've done this myself, when we're trying to talk about what's going on now, use the 70s as the reference point. If you think about it from a, in a very long view, we're living through the same moment. So. The reckoning with globalization, anxieties about the environment, as you say, in Britain specifically, among the sort of political class, a deep feeling of unease, a sort of feeling of a debate about Britain's role in the world and specifically Britain's relationship with its nearest neighbors. Those things have never gone away. Um, I mean, actually, Star Wars itself hasn't gone away. So Star Wars was filmed in the summer of 1976, the very hot summer. So it's the heat wave that lots of Ed, the British listeners will remember, older British listeners. It's filmed at the point when, this, when the pound is tanking, which is very good news for the film's makers because everything is becoming, it's becoming much cheaper for them to film it in Britain. And actually, a lot of the funny thing is one of the, one of the stereotypes of the 70s is the sort of Fawlty Towers stereotype of Britain, which, by the way, isn't one we have right now about Britain, which is really interesting which is Britain is shabby, things not working, the train's not working, things not running properly, we can't, sewage in the rivers, all of that stuff. And actually the Star Wars actors, the Americans who were flown over, they often would talk about that, you know, that they couldn't get a drink after nine o'clock or whatever it is, you know, couldn't get a cheese sandwich at the hotel as the, the Fawlty Towers um, reference. Tom was talking the first half about things being threaded through the period and that thread of kind of national self-flagellation, a sense of national shabbiness, coupled with a deep sense of anxiety about globalization, about sort of looming apocalyptic environmental disaster. You know, there are absolute resonances there between now and then. And I suppose one, you say, why are we always reaching for the 70s? I mean, one reason, Helen, I guess, is that certainly... I'm a child of the 70s. Our political imaginations 
have been shaped by that sense of the 70s as the sort of dark night before the dawn, as it were. So even if you don't like Mrs. Thatcher, you've never voted Conservative, you hate everything she stood for. There is this sort of sense that, as we were talking about before, that 1979 marks this radical fracture point and that the 70s is this sort of, either it's this kind of prelapsarian paradise of full employment and everybody being kind to their neighbours and stuff. If you're very much on the left or if you're on the right, it's bin bags in the streets and it's kind of burly men warming their hands around braziers. And I think to refer to a book that I mentioned in the first half, which is Phil Tinline's book, The Death of Nightmares, about consensus. One of the things that he brings out really nicely is how particular political generations, they carry in their heads a kind of common series of stock characters and stock situations. The sort of burly Labour politician with national health spectacles who's always handing out pay deals to the trade unions or something. I mean, that sort of figure, which is a sort of 1970s caricature, I think if you're of a certain age, let's say between 35 and 65, that figure is embedded in your imagination. So obviously the 70s will die as a reference point eventually, I guess, for our successors, for people who are now 20 who don't give a damn about the 1970s. It's just ancient history. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this and I find it strange that I have that same imaginative understanding of the 1970s as you've just described. I was born in 1984. I was born in a Labour household in the northeast of England. And I still have some kind of frame that is... 79 was a marker of when things turned around a bit and this woman was brutal and she'd never had to be so brutal and all of those things. But ultimately, things started to get better at some point in the 80s and the 70s and before that, it was very bad. And Helen, you didn't have that same understanding and that, that I just thought that was really interesting. Well, I'm a child of the 70s and so I spent my childhood in the 70s and I think that that changes the perception that one has of yeah. these decades. And I think that if you were a child in the 70s, that there was a sense, I think, of crisis, of in something in national life that didn't work. And that sort of culminated in, like, in the winter of discontent with walking to school with the rubbish on the streets. But at the same time, there were things that were part of a continuity to an older England, I think without any doubt. And the sense that, in some sense, Thatcher, regardless of what one thought of her politics, represented some kind of threat to that, partly because of her style. And I think that's really a lot of where the idea that there was a juncture in, in, in 1979 came from. Because if you try, for the reasons that we've already talked about, to tell a story that makes 1979 this crucial turning point after which, sort of before darkness, thereafter, either light if you liked it from the right or the conditions of despair if you didn't like it from the left. I don't think it, it really adds up as a story. But just on the, the point there, I think we should just get in terms of making our comparison with now is, is like clearly there are things that are objectively similar to the 70s now. This isn't just people reaching for their crisis narratives because we have lived through a set of energy shocks. We are living with an issue about inflation. We are living with sterling being a weak currency and it having the capacity to completely wreck a government. Think about Liz Truss. Yeah. So there's obviously, there's something that's going on that's, as Dominic says, about our imaginative sensibilities and what we reach for. But there's also something where you can say, actually, there are. And a sense of helplessness, the sense of helplessness in the government that they not none of them have a, an idea or a new idea that can really get beyond all of those things that you've mentioned. Well, I think that's a difference, actually, an important difference. The 1970s are very fertile in terms of ideas. Environmentalism feels like a very new and exciting idea in the 70s. It's radical. There's a popular literature associated with it. I mean, some listeners will laugh at this, but some watership down or something. You know, it's it's there in progressive rock. Environmentalism feels new and exciting. Of course, it doesn't feel new to us because we've lived with it all our lives. But politically, you have on the Labour left, the alternative economic strategy, as they call it. So the idea of that actually, let's go to protectionism. Let's shield Britain off from the harsh winds of global competition. Take a kind of time out, build up our manufacturing once again import controls, all of this stuff. They're pouring out papers arguing for this. On the right, 
the great ferment, the great sort of excitement that surrounds monetarism. And all the American speakers will come and talk at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And these are seminars that will be attended not just by people on the right. So people from the Labour Party will go and listen to these things and be genuinely interested in the new ideas to make the economy work. I don't get a massive sense now, I have to say, that there's a real effervescence of ideas. I mean, maybe I'm completely misreading the Keir Starmer inner circle, but I don't get the impression that they are fizzing with the excitement of radical notions. And obviously on the Tory side, there is a complete sense of exhaustion, understandably, after so long in office. But I don't think there's a sense, as there was in the 70s, that you see reflected so much in the popular culture of the 70s, a sense of almost apocalyptic possibility. So in the popular culture of the 70s, there was this definite sense, something is coming. In the 80s, there will be a radical change and Britain will go in a new direction. And that could be fascism, but it could be, I mean, lots of people think it could be a radical new left-wing turn. It could be coming out of Europe, out of the common market, which obviously the general assumption is that if that happens, it will come from the left, not from the right. So there is a sort of sense of, if you're really into politics and you're young, I think there is a sense of, of excitement actually in the 70s. You know, there are think tanks, there are communes, there are all these kind of things. I don't get any sense of that today. I think there's just a weariness, which is probably more like the atmosphere. Well, it has some similarities, I would say, with the atmosphere in the 90s, the dog days of the major government, although the difference then is there was this very sort of shiny, excited, modernizing Labour government ready to go, which again, you don't really get this time. I think what one of the things that's, I think, really interesting is the fact that there is this kind of apocalyptic tone to aspects of the, the 1970s, including actually amongst those close to power. So isn't it Heath's permanent secretary who basically yeah. has a breakdown? So William during, Armstrong. Yeah, exactly. during the three-day yes. week, yeah. convinced that the end of the world is about to yeah. occur. But as you say, Dominic, there's also a, some sense, I think, not necessarily of utopian sentiment in there, but still some sense that out of the end time, something new can come, as you've been saying. But I think that if you skip to now, you can say there is a kind of like end times undercurrent going around climate change. Yeah. And there is something that's supposed to be the grand idea to engage with that net zero mm. um, by 2050, which is revolutionary when you stop and think about it. Yet it, it still seems now in Britain to be really something that, is hollowing out the politics. And so in the sense is, is that the parties don't actually look very different from each other, even though the personalities are really radically, I would say, mm. different from each other. It's quite difficult really to imagine that a Labour government in policy terms is going to do much different. AI also has a sense of doom hanging over it, like it's going to end society. I sometimes find myself succumbing to it, to be honest, with <laughs> with AI. Um, not, don't worry, Tom, I wouldn't do this interview if you were just AI generated. But, oh, good. A, but, but at the same time, is, is I think you're absolutely onto something here, Dominic, though. It's like you can draw these parallels, but at the same time, there, there doesn't actually seem that sense of political possibility that was still there. In but the, I wonder in whether the part of that is because there's a very... So going back to what you were saying about your own childhood in the 70s, Helen. Of course, one of the key things about the 70s is that most people in the 70s are better off than they've ever been. So even as they are bemoaning the state of the nation and reading about strikes in the newspapers and all of that stuff, they are doing things and they own things and they do things that are unprecedented. In other words, they have extraordinary labor-saving devices in the home that are literally life-changing. I'm a sort of stuck record on this and people always kind of laugh when I say it. But to get a washing machine for women is transformative. It frees them up to, to go into the workforce, to do an open university degree, to do all these kind of things. People are going on their first foreign holiday. They are doing all those slightly stereotypical 70s things. Of course, if you're young now, you're not doing things that your parents never did. You're actually doing fewer things and you have fewer things. Off, you, know, you don't have a house, crucially. The, 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 the Thatcher succeeds in 79, not least because she is so successful among first-time voters, aspirational voters who genuinely think, especially if you live in the Midlands or the South and you don't work in the old nationalised industries, you genuinely think the 1980s are actually going to be really good to me. 
I'm going to have two cars. I'm going to go on foreign holidays. I don't think you think that if you're 28 now. And I think that contributes to the lack of political utopianism and the lack of political optimism. That in other words, it is, it's not just about the kind of political ideas and the circumstances of, and the net zero and the AI, but I think it also is a reflection mm. of people's kind of socioeconomic position. And that would suggest as well, isn't there, that the thing that's missing in any kind of parallel is there is nothing that's really like the 2008 crash. We can talk about the energy shocks yeah. being parallels. We can talk about um, issues about financial markets and Britain's currency, but that sense in which something has economically happened from which there hasn't actually been a recovery. So we're more like sort of 19, 19, late 1930s America or something like that, like the sense of actually nobody can fix this? Well, except you could say in the 30s, you get the New Deal, how much fixing the New Deal does and how much fixing imminent war does you might argue about yeah. but there's but there's still i'd say in 1930s america a sense that the federal state can do something to address but did they did they believe that because I, I agree with dominic that the younger generation got completely cynical about the idea that things are going to improve that so many that i, that I speak to said well of course i'm not going to own a house like don't don't be ridiculous of course i'm not going to own a house and yeah that for 15 years which is different to the 1970s wages have been suppressed or held the living standards have declined for what 15 years now or at least they haven't improved which is un unprecedented i think it's not since the napoleonic wars that we've had a squeeze of that <laughs> of that type which then you think well why are we not more revolutionary now i mean that you had all of this crisis in the 1970s and yet right now it feels quite docile and yet it's yeah, it's I, worse i completely agree so there's a point in the 1970s when i think living standards stagnate and then slightly decline for two years and this is seen as the source of tremendous kind of perturbation and despair that kind of oh my god two years of declining living standards after 30 years of growth this is shocking and what a terrible state of affairs and of course as you say that's not remotely comparable with the weariness and the hopelessness and actually the person this i think helps to explain why a gentleman that i'm not normally a tremendous admirer of which is jeremy corbyn why he inspires such enthusiasm is that it is actually remarkably unusual for a politician in the 2010s to appeal to young people and to be utopian and to not sort of say, oh, we face hard choices and, you know, let's all reach for the hair shirts. Corbyn is such an outlier in that regard. And that, I think, explains why he one, is one of the reasons he inspires such tremendous devotion among young voters in that period between 2016 and 2018 or so. Yeah, same with Bernie Sanders, I guess. But even Boris Johnson, weirdly, he's not the utopian, but he has, uh, it's not hopeless, I guess. It's like a sort of, yeah. it's the boosterism. boosterism. The boosterism yeah. is, is, I think, though, that the difference, though, is that there's a certain element of boosterism to Thatcher in the sense that she, I think, psychologically can't bear the narratives of decline. I mm. think it kind of like offends some psychic wound in her, the yeah. idea that that Britain's um, in decline. And even if one part of her brain can understand what the economic aspects of that are, she loathes it. And in that sense, I think there is a similarity with Johnson. I think he can't bear the idea, in some sense, of talking about decline. But the difference between the two is, is that whatever one thinks about Thatcher, and I think that there's nothing that's programmatic and systematic about the first Thatcher government at all. I agree with you there. Dominic, she's still got some notion of what she's going to do yeah, to yeah. address that. It's really difficult to say that Boris Johnson had any oh, didn't have anything. <laughs> comparable <laughs> idea of what he was going to do. And so that meant that his boosterism is just vacuous in a way in which I think Thatcher's boosterism, regardless of what thinks about the political implications of it, just you can't say it was vacuous. No, no, not at all. I mean, Thatcher has... Thatcher is um, it, it, one of the things that people always get wrong about Mrs. Thatcher is they think that she is, uh, her critics would always say she only cares about money or she cares about market forces and balance sheets. She, there's no, no joy in her, no romance, no soul. She's just a sort of empty Philistine. And, and this is completely wrong. Mrs. Thatcher is in many ways very romantic. She has a tremendously romantic sense of Britain's history. She would, she would show people the portraits in number 10 and say Nelson, Wellington, isn't this wonderful? This kind of thing. She loved all that. And she genuinely, you're absolutely right, Helen. 
which she says in 1979 to Michael Cochrane in an interview just before Election Day, you know, I can't bear Britain in decline. We who rescued or saved half Europe, who stood up when half Europe was in chain. You know, that is apt. She believes that in a, in a very profound, personal way. Her father supposedly had said to something at a speech in the Grantham Rotary Club in the 1930s, I had rather be a, the, the meanest boot black in England than the richest man in, in Europe or something like that. That kind of that kind of Lord Palmerston spirit is is always there in Thatcher. Now Boris, I think, had that as well. Of course he did, although in his case I think it was a little bit more performative. But she's doing all the paperwork. She's spent sitting up at night till four o'clock in the morning, poring over the policy documents, thinking, how do we fix this? How do we make it work? Yeah, you know she's nothing if not the kind of Grantham grammar school SWAT. I actually think we get prime ministers wrong almost always. Actually, yeah. So as as you say, Mrs. Thatcher is a total romantic. Boris Johnson is actually quite a depressive character, a loner, the last man who wants to go to the pub, and the, the public perception of him is the opposite. Blair is not a shallow PR man. He's actually very religious and almost zealous in his religion. That's the key to understanding Blair, not his shallowness. And I think one interesting thing with Starmer, and I, I agree with what you say, he doesn't have that that Blair charisma or that sense of shininess and hope. I wonder whether he has something of the Thatcher, though, in that we misunderstand him as being a kind of boring centrist. And actually, he's far more left-wing than his perception. And he wants to go further. He's obviously a serious man and all of that. But there's a great piece in, I think it was in The Guardian, at some point uh, after Mrs. Thatcher had become Conservative Party leader. And it says, the key to understanding Mrs. Thatcher is how seriously she is focused on winning power, that she will try to hold back her instincts, which are obviously to the right, all of those romantic instincts. She will, she, she says that she's not going to have a bust up with the union. She's obviously Eurosceptic, but she is prepared to say, I, I will inherit Ted Heath's policy and I will follow it. She'll, she's prepared to do what is necessary to win. I, I just wonder whether there is something a little bit similar with Keir Starmer, that the key to understanding him is how much he is prepared to do to win. Yeah, no, I think that's an, I mean, his behaviour since, actually since he entered the House of Commons, would suggest that he's somebody who's ruthlessly focused, as Mrs. Thatcher was. Mrs. Thatcher is very good at politics. She's ruthlessly opportunistic. She's a brilliant opportunist, actually, in challenging Heath, in the way she steers her party through opposition, the way she makes she blunts the abrasive edges before 1979. You know, the the emollient, the relative emollients of the 1979 manifesto, all of those things. I mean, I think Starmer seems like his opponents in the on the left of the Labour Party would say he's nothing but a ruthless opportunist. But, I mean, you could take that as a compliment, right? And actually, in a weird way, Tom, you can do that while still being a romantic. Because you, you could say, I care about the ends. I really care about the ends, and I will do whatever it takes to achieve them. And, you know, if I get my hands dirty, so be it. You know, there's something noble in that if that is for the right cause. And I agree with you, by the way, that Starmer probably deep down is more left-wing than, than people imagine. I don't think you would have had the career that he's had and, you know, especially as a young man, and then shed all that. I mean, I don't actually really ever think people do that, actually. I think um, I, I, would be, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him beginning to push, if he becomes prime minister, beginning to push in a more left-wing direction than people anticipate. But there is a big difference, isn't there? Because Thatcher could construct a narrative out of the 70s. Whether it was a, whether it was a true narrative doesn't really matter. She constructed a narrative of, like, crisis... And she set out an agenda, again, not as systematically as people thought and not implemented as consistently as people thought, but the two were like tied together. It's quite difficult to see what narrative Keir Starmer is constructing out of the past decade or whatever sort of long decade, if we're in a long decade, yeah. if we're in the long 2010s or whatever it is that we're in, in a way that's actually going to help him either win power in the sense that he's going to win, assuming that he is because of the Conservatives, or to 
govern. And that's, I think, the difference or an important difference between the decades in the senses is like you can say there's lots of structural comparisons in terms of the energy shocks, in terms of the changing geopolitical world, in terms of the rise of a sense that there are limits to economic growth and that you've got to engage with environmental questions now on an, another level, perhaps, than what was true in the 70s. But you've still got to have out of that some sense of what you're going to do about it. And I think that that's the point where you can say that our politics is more exhausted, actually, than what the 70s politics yeah. was. Is a cause that the structural problems now, I think, seem more overwhelming. And that may be why we have actually such... Whatever's true about Starmer's inner convictions, we actually have such shallow differences between the two and, political parties. And he's he, I think, is still a man shaped by the seventies, isn't he himself? And most of our politicians today, we haven't reached a point uh, where we have a politician who is not influenced most of all by that sort of that idea of the seventies and the eighties. Would you think? Yeah, I think that's. I think that's. I think that's true. I think the seventies and the eighties still occupy quite a large part of our political imagination but of course that will that that will recede over time so if we had this i'm i'm very conscious of this having written this kind of series of books about britain since the 50s about how things that i started writing about 20 years ago that felt at the time like they were everybody cares about gene shrimpton and terence stamp you know <laughs> um nobody cares about that now and i i think you know all the minutiae, the Wilson governments or the Callaghan governments, things that I thought everybody cares about that in 2008. Now, I don't think people do. So I think the 70s will recede. Going back to the point about narratives, I think there's a really interesting thing here. Mrs. Thatcher undoubtedly constructed a very plausible narrative about what had gone wrong in the years before she came to office. And it worked because it resonated with what a lot of people believed. It wasn't like she brainwashed them. But she also had a narrative about where the story didn't just stop. So the story she was telling had a second chapter, as it were, which is where we are now going. And if you read her speeches, there is an evocation there of people owning shares, people buying their own houses. There is a sort of a, a fairy tale ending to the story, if you like. You know, she had a very, very well-defined and evocative narrative about a future Britain. Proudly independent homeowners, a country that's walked tall in the world once again, trading with its European neighbours, hand in hand with the United States, winning the Cold War, all of that stuff. Starmer, I, I think he could easily have a very good narrative about what's gone wrong. So he could say 14 years of Toryism, corrupt, incompetent, a prime minister every week, made a mess of COVID. I think he can do that fine because I think that's actually a very old story. That's the story that Harold Wilson told about the Tories in the 1950s. But what he seems to completely lack is the other part of the narrative. So what's Starmer's Britain look like? What's his dream Britain? What will families be doing? What will public services look like? Of that, we have not the slightest glimmer of an, you know, of a, of an inkling. And in part, I wonder if that goes back to your point about the sense of helplessness, the sense that actually it doesn't really matter what he thinks, because it'll all be determined by the net zero commitment by AI and by what's going on in China or what's going on in Russia anyway. Yeah. Today, we yeah we don't think the Dark Knight rises. We just think he stays down or whatever the uh, no. analogy is. Maybe that's because actually there was still a story to tell about British politics, a distinctly British politics, or at least that Thatcher wanted to do that, even though you, you would say actually she was opening Britain up more to the world than those prime ministers that came before her. That is another juncture. She was making yeah. Britain a much more international country, particularly in terms of opening, getting rid of capital controls and financialising Britain in that respect. And in that sense, perhaps then we live in a world in which, at least in Britain, is that the fact of narrowing down national possibilities has actually come paradoxically out of the end of the 1970s. It was the last gasp in a way of telling a distinctively British political mm. story. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, I think Tony Blair was able to do it, wasn't he? Britain is a young country. Mm. The sort of slightly cool Britannia side of the Blair regime. I think Blair did it. But it was but very shallow. But it was shallow. And I think since then, you know, what was Cameron's Britain? What was Theresa yeah. May's Britain? I mean, God knows what Liz Truss's Britain was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that this sort of, yeah, I don't think anybody has done that at all, actually. 
Well, on that cheery note, Dominic, <laughs> we'll have to get you back on to talk about the, the 1980s or the 1990s. But it's been absolutely wonderful to have you on. We thoroughly appreciate it. Oh, you're very go, welcome. Go out and buy his books. They're fantastic. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of These Times. Dominic Sandbrook's two books about the 1970s are State of Emergency, Britain 1970 to 1974, and Seasons in the Sun, The Battle for Britain 1974 to 1979. Helen and I are having a really great time delving into our modern history and talking about how it explains today's world. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with your friends.